0: um as uh, As I look uh, into, uh, into the congregation I do, rec- I do see a few new faces at least faces i 'm not familiar with that that's good that's a good sign um, and some of you who are at least new to me may not realize who I am and why they asked a schmuck like myself to come and uh, share the word with all of you. I had the opportunity to uh, to be an interim pastor here for about uh, eight months last year as the church was going through a period of transition uh, great great eight months, uh, and if, uh, if you haven't figured it out, this is a, such an incredible uh, congregation. I, I love the people here, uh, and it was just a real great time for me, and so I've looked forward to coming back and fellowshipping and worshiping with you all, and I'm glad to be able to do that here today. Uh, the word of the Lord for this morning comes from a very special passage uh, of scripture. Uh, I once heard a sermon preached on this passage, by uh the 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 late edmund p Clowney. i don't know if some of you know who dr Clowney is or not Uh, he is a very important uh and very uh well-known reformed presbyterian uh, minister and scholar uh an old testament man and he uh and i heard him preach a passage on this uh uh, on this text uh many years ago and it was one that fascinated me for, for years in fact um Uh, If you take uh, Hebrew with me at Reformed Theological Seminary, where I currently do my work, uh, every year I have students write term papers on this passage, uh, because it is just that rich and it's just that profound. Uh, So the word of the Lord for this morning comes from Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. Hear now this reading of God's word. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you will strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? That's the reading of God's word for this morning. Let's uh, bow in a word of prayer, ask for him to bless us as we reflect on his word today. Let's let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you, Lord, for your word that gives to us the uh, The truths of scripture that gives to us lord the gospel of jesus christ and as we reflect on your word today we pray that you will be pleased to bless your bless us your people teach us once again and remind us of who you are as our god and what you call for us to do as your children hear us dear lord for we pray all these things in jesus name amen folks there are so many times in our lives where uh, we go through a moment of crisis and the Lord brings us through. Then we go through another crisis, and we wonder if things are going to work out again. And it does. Then we have another crisis, and we still wonder if God's going to provide. And guess what? He does. And yet we go through another one, and we still don't get it. I don't know if your life is like mine, but that really is in many ways a summary in broad scopes of what my life has been like. I still remember being in seminary Am I going to graduate? And guess what? Through the grace of God, I did. I remember uh, thinking about becoming a pastor and wondering if that day would ever come. I mean, you you see men up there. As a a young uh, uh, high school, college student, you see men up there with such uh, authority and power and godliness, and you wonder if you're ever going to be that. Uh, By the grace of God, I almost made it. I wonder about my ordination. Um, Would I ever become ordained as a minister? And by the grace of God, I did. Um, My PhD program, would I ever graduate and finish that darn dissertation? (laughs) And and you just wonder, and by the grace of God, I did. Would would the day ever come when I would actually get a call to be a professor of a seminary? I didn't think it would ever happen. But guess what? It did. Would the, the Lord ever allow for me to publish a book? Recently, as some of you know, The Lord graced me with that as well. You see, my life is basically one testament of the way that God provided, and he's still doing it today. And I'm going through times when I kind of wonder, I'm going through this period now, and, and I wonder, you see, is God gonna pull me through? And sometimes we are so easy to forget that the Lord who was with us in the past to provide us through every stage that we are going through is a God that is with you now and guess what? He is going to pull you through. This passage in Exodus 17 talks about a time in the history of Israel where they were going through something very similar, uh, where they were going through times of struggles, times of doubt, and Israel just simply forgot that the God who was with them is a God who provided for them in the past. And they wonder, is God going to come through or not? And guess what? They crumbled. They doubted. In fact, they did worse than doubt. They did sins against the Lord here that is quite remarkable and unbelievable. So today, what what I'd like to do is to focus our thoughts on this very intriguing passage here in Exodus 17 that shows the person and the work of God and the way that he redeems stiff-necked, sinful people like Israel. So the theme here is really to see the amazing reaction of God to the arrogance, to the audacity of the sinful people of Israel. And the application that I hope that we will see is to encourage us to see that, first of all, we really are not that different. But the way that the Lord responded to his people in the past is just a shadow of a reflection of the way that he responds to us in Jesus Christ. There are three real simple points I'd like to uh, articulate here. First is Israel's complaint against God. Secondly, to see God's reaction to Israel. And then thirdly, the lesson that we are to learn from this passage. Those three real easy points. Israel's complaint, God's reaction, and then the lesson to be learned. First, uh, Israel's complaint against God. The the historical background to this passage catches us uh, as as Israel is leaving Exodus. Remember, they they had been in slavery for 400 years. Now they are free. And they go into the wilderness as they make their way to the mountain of God to receive his law and ultimately into the promised land. But they're in a period of desert. This is a wilderness. There aren't any real resources. There is no real water that they can access. There isn't a lot of food. And that is the situation that they are in. And in fact, what's even worse, in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 1, it tells us that they are in this situation by the command of God. In other words, God commanded them to be in this wilderness in this situation where they were going to have uh, a lot of resources. Now, this isn't the first time that they are struggling with the lack of water and lack of food. In fact, if you read earlier in Exodus chapter 15 and 16, it describes situations where Israel was in exactly the same situation. Exodus chapter 15, in fact, is almost identical. They had no water. They're in the wilderness and they have no water and they need water in order to live and they grumbled. And what does the Lord do? He provides water for them. In Exodus chapter 17, not only do they not have water, they don't have any food. They grumble and complain again. And what is it that the Lord does? He provides manna that comes down from heaven. Still, they're sick of the manna and they want something else. And so what do they do? They grumble. They complain and they doubt the Lord. In spite of the fact that he provided for them in the past, they doubt him again And what does God do? He provides quail that comes to provide them meats. Here in Exodus chapter 17, you find them in a situation exactly the same. They don't have water. And at this point, folks, you might wonder that maybe they would have learned their lesson, that they would have got it. God provided for them in the past. He's going to do it again, so we don't need to worry about it, right? That is not uh, what they do. And in fact, Israel's response here in Exodus chapter 17, is quite startling. They do two things uh, that are quite shocking. First, it says that they tested the Lord. Um, Notice the uh, the accusation that is made there in um, in verse 2. The people quarreled with Moses to give water to them, and Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? In fact, uh, this idea of testing is so important that part of the name that is given to this area is this word test, and you read that in verse 7. He called the name of this place Massa uh, and Meribah. The word Massa is the Hebrew word for testing uh, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us uh, or not? You see, they are doubting in spite of the fact that God provided in the past in spite of the fact that he even gave to them water before, they just completely forgot. And they struggle and they doubt to wonder if God's going to do the same. So they test the Lord. Is God really amongst us or not? Is God really going to provide for us uh, or not? We struggle with it the very same way. We struggle with the same questions. If God is truly with us, is God going to really provide for us? In spite of the fact that our lives are a testament of the God, of the Lord's provision, every single day, we still forget, we still doubt. And in fact, you could say that the testing of Israel is bold. It says in in other passages that God tests Israel while they're in in the wilderness, that is true. But God is God, and he has a prerogative to do that, to test his people, not to cause them to stumble, because he doesn't do that. But he tests us to see if our faith is genuine and true. Because you see, remember where Israel's going. They are ultimately going into the land of Canaan. If they're going to have a hard time here in the wilderness and they can't trust God, they're going to have even a much more difficult time when they have even greater challenges in the land when they have to face the Canaanites. So the Lord is refining them by testing them. He is sanctifying them here to purify their faith. God has the prerogative to do that. And notice, by the way, that the complaint it says in verse 2 is against Moses, but it's not really against Moses. It is a complaint against God. They are not just testing Moses. They are testing God. It's actually not too different than a similar type of trial or a test that someone like Adam went through in the garden many years before, uh, where the Lord placed uh, the woman there, the woman take of of the fruit that she wasn't supposed to, She gives it to the man, God comes to him with a word of judgment, and he says to the man, did you take the fruit that you weren't supposed to? Remember Adam's response. Oh God, it was the woman that you gave to me. That is the reason why I took this fruit. He's not just blaming the woman. Implicitly, you see, even Adam is blaming God, the woman that you gave to me. Dear God, you see, you are the one that is ultimately to blame. They are testing the Lord. Not only do they test the Lord, it says that they quarreled with God in verse 2, uh, that, they, that the people quarreled with Moses uh, and quarreled with the Lord. And in fact, that word quarrel is repeated again in verse 7 as part of the other name that is given to this place. Uh, the name is called Massa and Merivah because they're of the quarreling of the people uh, of Israel and because they tested the Lord. Now, the word quarreling is the Hebrew word reeve. And in fact, you can even hear the word reeve in that name, merivah. And, and the word reeve here, it does mean quarreling, but it really is a very special kind of quarreling. It isn't just any kind of quarreling, it is actually a legal kind of quarreling. This is a type of quarreling or complaint that is brought before a, a court. Uh, it's the type of complaint that is brought before a, a legal situation. In other words, the word here perhaps quarreling is really not the best word to translate the word reeve. The word probably is better lawsuit or litigation or suing. Now we all understand what that means. Um, that essentially is what the Israelites are doing here. They are bringing a lawsuit against God for violating uh, his covenant. So when it says uh, that the name of this place is Massa and Merivah. What those two words there mean is testing and lawsuit. Now, folks, that's uh, pretty bold. Not only is Israel complaining, they are bringing a legal litigating lawsuit against the Lord for violating His covenant. In fact, later uh, Moses fears that the people of God are going to stone him in verse four. Remember that in the Old Testament, stoning wasn't the act of a, of a chaotic mob. Stoning was the act of a civil penal sanction. It was essentially their, uh, their uh, electric chair. It was their death penalty uh, of the ancient Old Testament world that presumed a, a verdict of guilt. So stoning is a legal act. And in fact, when God tells Moses to bring the elders together, you get a sense here of a jury being created here in order to now litigate the trial that is being now put, uh, that is now being called forward. And what the shocking thing, and the most shocking thing that is going on here, it isn't the people that are being brought a legal lawsuit against. It is God that is being sued by the people of God. It is the Israelites that are bringing a lawsuit against the Lord. That is how audacious the Israelites are being here. That is how bold Uh, The people of God are being here, and Israel's sins uh, are often not too different than our sins as well. We we do this, folks, all the time. We forget the faithfulness of God, just the way that the Israelites do, and just as they had the audacious and arrogant heart to challenge the Lord to 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 make accusations of violating His covenant. So, in fact, we often do exactly the same. We tell God that he has violated his covenant, that he is not true to the words that he uh, has given to us uh, in the past, and we oftentimes bring a covenant lawsuit even against the Lord himself. And as we reflect on this idea of this complaint, of a testing and of a lawsuit that the people of God bring against the Lord, how does the Lord respond? He re- you see, what would he do? What you find here that the Lord doing is nothing short than remarkable. What you see is nothing short than gracious. God's response to Israel is this. First, he is the one who initiates a trial scene, a court scene. He calls Moses, he tells him to bring some of the elders, and they are forming sort of a jury scene uh, where they are going to now uh, govern and oversee this uh, this civil court in verse 5. God tells Moses to take, in fact, this staff uh, in, verse, in the second half of verse 5, the staff, remember, is described in a very particular way. This is a staff with which Moses used to strike down the Nile. This, in other words, this is a staff of judgment. This is a staff of, a wrath, of the wrath of God. And this is a staff that, Moses, that God tells Moses to bring. And then it says in verse 6 that God himself, that the Lord himself will stand upon the rock. Now, at this point, Uh, some Bible translators mistranslate this word, and instead of saying that the Lord stood upon the rock, some will say that he stood beside the rock, next to the rock. And I don't think that's correct. If the Lord is standing beside the rock, then when Moses strikes the rock, God is just sort of a bystander watching this thing happen like everybody else. And I don't think that's what's going on here. It says here that the Lord stands upon the rock. In other words, when Moses takes that staff, remember, this is a staff of judgment, the staff of the wrath of God. And when he has to strike down that rock, because the Lord is standing on that rock, before, the Lord, before Moses can strike the rock, he must first strike down the Lord. And only after the Lord receives this death blow of judgment, this death blow of wrath, only... After he receives that, only then do the waters of life come flowing out of this rock. You see, folks, what you see here in Exodus 17 is a picture of our Christian gospel. And this is the reason why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in verse 4, as he thinks back to this passage in Exodus 17, says that they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was christ the image of christ here is the image of him who took upon himself the striking wrath blow of god god took upon himself the judicial wrath of judgment instead of the people you see isn't that what should have happened i mean you have audacious bold sinful people that are going to be uh uh, that are going to be uh, crazy enough to bring a lawsuit against the lord are going to be bold enough to make a false accusation. This is slander. This is is false witness to say that God has violated his covenant. Shouldn't it have been the people who should have been condemned? Shouldn't it have been the people who should have received that, that, that death blow of the wrath of God and justly, fairly? This is exactly what the people deserve to be so bold. But that's not what happens. The staff and the wrath of God strikes down not the people, but strikes down the Lord. And in that, you could see how the Apostle Paul perhaps says later in 2 Corinthians chapter 5.21 that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The significance of Exodus 17 is so important, and you see it reiterated when you see a very similar passage happen in numbers chapter 20 verses 1 to 12 where it, the same exact scenario happens again they are in the wilderness there is no water for them to drink and they are carrying around this rock at this point the lord says to moses don't strike the rock but to speak to it but moses being being brash not trusting in the word of god of the word of the lord what does he do he doesn't just strike the rock again it says that he strikes it twice and for that reason, folks, Moses is prohibited and not allowed to enter into the land. I've often wondered, you know, our God is just. I get that. But here it just seems the penalty doesn't pit the crime. I mean, just simply because he, stalked, he spoke to the rock, uh, uh, just simply because he struck the rock as opposed to speak to it, just because he did that, now he is, he is not allowed to enter into the land of promise? Is it Is it really that bad what Moses did here uh, in terms of speaking as opposed to striking? If we understand this rock being Christ, a, a, a typological picture of the crucifixion and the death of Christ as a substitute for us, then yes, folks, it is that bad because as the book of Hebrews tells us, Christ is crucified once for all, not twice. And for Moses to strike that rock again, twice even, Uh, in that second setting, is to essentially re-sacrifice Christ again and to say that the first time was just simply not enough. We read about the complaint of Israel. We read about God's amazing reaction of grace to Israel. What is the lesson that we are to learn uh, from this passage? This is such a rich passage, and it's such an important one because the Old Testament And the new. The Bible as a whole refers back to it over and over and over again as a constant uh, illustration to the people of God. Don't be like that generation in the wilderness where they tested the Lord and brought a lawsuit against the Lord. Don't forget that generation of Massa and Meribah. In fact, in uh, Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11, it says exactly that. Do not be like the generation at Massa and Meribah in the wilderness. When they harden their heart. The warning, it's a warning. Don't be like that generation that tested the Lord. Don't be like them. In fact, uh, in Hebrews chapter 3, it quotes from Psalm 95 to give us the church the same exact warning. Don't be like that wilderness generation of Massa and Meriva where they tested and grieved and, and complained and brought a lawsuit against the Lord. Don't be like that, but persevere. Hold on to your faith in Jesus Christ and move forward, looking always, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. But as we read in 1 Corinthians, chapter 4, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in verses 1 to 4, the Apostle Paul doesn't give this just as a warning. He gives us something even better. He tells us that this is, in fact, a message of grace. Remember, that rock is Christ. It is interesting that Paul's take on this is not just to see the warning, but to see the grace of God, to see Christ uh, in this passage. It is always fascinated to me. uh, 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 One of my interest uh, uh, studies is personal names and and location names. In this passage here, the name of the place that is given to this location is Massa and Muriva, testing and lawsuit which I always found so fascinating because by that name, you see, it isn't a memorable name that describes the great act of God. It, doesn't, it isn't something that tells about the, the wonders of God. This isn't a name that is like uh, the names that, that many that we have that is a reminder of the grace of God. That it, it's a name that reminds the people of Israel of their sinfulness, Massa and Murivah. This is a place that is going to be, every time you come across it and you say those names, you are going to be reminded of how Israel failed, of how Israel sinned. And that is what the people are going to remember. It's, it's, it's like making the object of wrath. It's like making the object of death. And making this like the symbol of everything that you believe in religion. It's like taking an electric chair and then now making that now the symbol of everything that you believe. That's sort of what it's like here to name this place Massa and Muriva, Or perhaps more directly, it's like taking something like a cross, something that is a symbol of death and judgment, and making this the symbol of everything that you believe, you could say, uh, as, 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 as followers of that teaching, as Christians. You see, when the Apostle Paul looked at this passage, he doesn't see just curse and death. What he sees is Jesus. He sees life. He sees blessing. He sees the waters of life and the waters of restoration. And this comes from Christ. Life comes from Jesus, because Jesus is the one who took upon himself the death that we so should have received the focus then of this passage is not so much on the sinfulness of people nor is it really about the faith of the people the focus of this passage is upon christ who is the object of our faith and you could say that is the whole point of the christian faith in general that our faith is strong not because of faith because if that were true then any religion out there is going to be a good one our faith is strong because of whom we believe in. We believe in a strong God. Therefore, we are a strong people because Jesus is strong. Jesus is powerful. There's an old uh, play. I've never seen this done outside of the city of San Diego. Uh, a play entitled the, uh, the Sign of Jonah. It's interesting because the play has absolutely nothing to do with Jonah. Uh, but what it is, it is, it's about a small town in Germany after post-World War II uh, Europe. It's a small town that is trying to wonder how exactly the Holocaust ever came about. And they're trying to shift blame and try to figure out who exactly was at fault. They blamed uh, the German soldiers and said they're the ones at fault. And they said, no, actually, they're just following orders of their superiors. It's their superiors, they're the ones who are at fault. And they said, no, actually, their superiors were just following orders from someone else. It was from Hitler. Adolf Hitler, you see, he is the one who was really at fault for the Holocaust of World War II. And then this community said, no, actually, even Hitler had a higher authority, and that was God. God is the one who is at fault for what happened here. And the entire community says, yeah, you're absolutely right. God was at fault. They put God on trial, and they found him guilty. And as penalty, they said, since God suffered and caused this pain, Let God also suffer this world, let him be born a man. In fact, don't make him just a man, let's make him a Jew, just like those who were suffering the Holocaust of World War II. One man stood forward and said, I lost a son in this war. Let God suffer the pains of what it means to suffer the loss of a son. See, when you read uh, and watch this play, and we reflect on this passage, the irony, I think, stands out so clearly. Man does not judge God. It is God who judges man. But when God does that and judges us, he doesn't see our guilt. He doesn't see our sins. He doesn't see our audacity. He doesn't see our brashness. He does not see Massa, nor does he see Muribah. What God sees in us is the rock. What he sees in us is Christ. And the reason why is because of everything that Jesus has done for us. Praise God uh, for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Let's bow in a word of prayer together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and we thank you, Lord, for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for all the blessings that we have in Christ, the newness of our sins, the newness of our lives, the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you that you do not uh, treat us Uh, as our sins deserve. But you give to us, Lord, the grace of your blessed Son. Thank you for these things. And as we celebrate that goodness, we pray that you will continually bless us richly in Jesus Christ. Hear us, dear Lord, for we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.